Hi everybody and welcome to the Grok Science Show. Ebola hemorrhagic fever has been making headlines since early 2014 with news of vaccines, treatments, and failing efforts to control the spread of the virus. In fact, this week the United States announced increases in military presence and financial support to West Africa. On the show today to discuss the science and politics of the Ebola virus is Dr. Brenda Wilson, professor of microbiology at the University of Illinois. In addition to her work on bacterial toxins and the development of novel antitoxin therapeutics, Dr. Wilson has a strong interest in biosecurity and the transmission of infectious disease. On this episode, we'll talk about the biology of the virus, the newest therapies, and projections about the future of the outbreak. Hi, I'm Brenda Wilson. I'm a professor of microbiology at the University of uh, Illinois at Ur Urbana-Champaign, and I study uh, bacterial pathogenesis primarily um, and it, with various aspects of looking at not only mechanisms of disease but also at ways of uh, developing anti-therapeutics. Uh, hmm. um, so what is the, about the biology of the Ebola virus that makes it so deadly? Well, once it starts replicating, I mean, it's an RNA virus, and so it it, it starts replicating, and it and it just bursts out. Of, it bursts out of the cells, and it goes to the next cell, and it just keeps propagating. And you've got, uh, and and our immune systems are not able to to handle it. It basically is what ends up happening. And then, in response to it, our our bodies actually start attacking, and it's just you get an an overwhelming immune response to the viral infection and so your your body's fighting it as well and it's and as a result it's damaging the body so um it's it, that's very common with a lot of these hemorrhagic uh viral diseases where um your immune systems in it, in its battle against the against the virus actually ends up causing more harm than than getting rid of the virus, um, so it, you're you're getting lots of cytokines being produced that overstimulate immune inflammatory responses. Is it known what what initiated this outbreak, um, and and how does it compare to to previous outbreaks? Um, well, there's a number of factors that have contributed to this one. I'm not sure that the exact source of, you know, how it got initiated and started uh, occurred, but certainly um, the the circumstances that you have in the region uh, have contributed to, um, I guess, it's uh, propagating to the point where it has now become, you know, a major crisis. Um, and, and I think a lot of it has to do with 
the culture, the nature of the um, economics and socioeconomic situation that we have in West Africa, and, and in particular in the Sierra Leone and um, Liberia, um, and then you know the neighboring countries as well. So I think that that has probably made it worse. Um, and we certainly are dealing with uh, some uh, countries that are exceptionally challenged in terms of resources and um, ability to deal with uh, a major outbreak such as this. So um, what resources would, would, would have helped them deal with it? Well, uh, this is not as infectious a disease as what... Um, something like smallpox or something like that would be, uh, it actually does require that you have contact with the body fluids of the individuals who are sick. And it would, if one had containment abilities and abilities to, you know, have a good sanitation and good um, uh, 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 containment uh of the virus so that you wouldn't transmit it from one person to another um, so readily, I think that that would have helped a great deal. But um, we have a number of practices that occur in this region due to cultural um, uh, practices, particularly in, in terms of burial of, the, of, of individuals where um, you are going to increase your chance of transmission simply because you've had direct contact with body fluids. We don't have uh, a situation where we can easily um, confine you know, sick individuals and keep them away from their family members and other members of the community that easily. And in particular, some of the, you know, um, the individuals who end up dying during their burial process, just that um, procedure alone actually will contribute to the high rate of transmission that we see um, in many of these cases. So what is the burial procedure? Well, there's, you know, of course, there's washing of the body and, and, and you know, there's a lot of hugging and kissing and other things that go on that uh, lead to exchange of, of body fluids. And then you have also many of the first responders in the hospitals where these patients might be. Many of those, they don't wear gloves, they don't wear face masks because it's viewed as a um, an insult or something that is taboo that you don't do. Um, and so as a consequence, while they're treating these patients who are bleeding out um, and releasing a lot of these uh, fluids, they're coming in contact. And so we've lost a great number of uh, the normal individuals who would be taking care of these uh, patients are actually also succumbing to the disease as well. And so you, you just have this propagation of factors. And, and now because of some of the policies that have been implemented and some of the measures that the governments are trying to uh, enforce to try to curb uh, this epidemic, um, we're seeing an, an, an exasperation of the, of the problem uh, because uh, people are now trying to hide their uh, their relatives that are you know perhaps sick, and, and rather than give it, get uh, bringing them in to get um, treatment. So, what kind of policies would make somebody want to hide um, 
their loved ones with Ebola? Well, the policy right now, and, and this was mostly because the government actually started enforcing it because they wanted to actually have the people report individuals who get sick. And, um, and of course, that meant that you would have to, you know, the patient who was sick would have to go into these hospital areas uh, um, where they would be getting treated and hopefully confined for, uh, and kept away from everyone. And, of course, the culture is such that that's not acceptable. You have to have patients, you know, families want to be with their, with their loved ones. And, and so, um, when you have that sort of a policy in place where, uh, I think now, uh, the governments have actually even, uh, stated that they would, you know, um, put people in jail because they are harboring someone who might be infected. That just worsens the situation and, and makes it, you know, even more challenging to to be able to control the situation. So it's a, it's just sort of, I, I, you know, I think that there's there's a lot of advice that's coming out of WHO and CDC and and the U.S. You know, other countries trying to help the situation, but um, I think that um, reactionary type of measures are being taken. Um, which aren't necessarily probably well thought out. Yeah. Um, so, so I think today Obama just announced today being uh, September 16th, uh, that he was, uh, sending over troops, I think 3000 troops over there. Um, do you think that that's going to improve the organization of the effort? You know, it's really hard to say. Okay. (laughs) Um, I, I think that that might help to some degree in maybe helping to, uh, maintain the borders so that you don't get spread to other countries, mm. um, such as Senegal, for example, you know, some of the refugees had, had, uh, left and, and went to Senegal and of course, you know, they ended up, uh, having some cases in Senegal as well. Okay. So you're a microbiologist by training. Um, is this the same Ebola strain as as the the one involved in historic outbreaks? Um, it is actually the more virulent strain, the Zaire strain. So there's there's a number of different strains, um, and uh, the one that um, you know it's, it has cross reactivity. With, uh, the Zaire strain, so you have the, it's the Guinea, um, uh, variant, um, right now that is, uh, responsible for the West African outbreak. And, um, it is, it is the more virulent strain that has, uh, been seen in other areas. Um, so, but the, the, there are actually, um, there's some evolving of the virus going on as well. So we don't really know, um, you know, how much it's being drifted and everything. Mm-hmm. We've got limited uh, information about that. And, and But the one that they have right now um, in the West Afri- uh, Africa is the Guinea variant um, G. And when you say it's evolving, um, could it be evolving to become more virulent or more deadly? Well, I don't know how it can get more because it's pretty bad. In the it could get airborne. <laughs> um, 
it, it could get that way. I suspect probably what we're seeing to some extent is that we've gotten some variants that actually might be less virulent um, simply because we actually do have survivors now. Mm. So there are individuals, you know, about half of the individuals are surviving um, their exposure to, to the Ebola and um, apparently have some immunity to it. And, of course, how is that immunity going to you know, be able to help in this situation and what kind of antibodies response and what kind of immune response was generated, uh, that's hard to say at this point, but we do have survivors. There are some there um, that appear to be, you know, resistant to what's there. So maybe it's not necessarily getting worse, but it might be changing a wee bit. And um, you, you kind of touched on this, but is there anything we can say about the people that have survived? Uh, is it hypothesized that maybe there's something genetic or something in their his- immune history or infection history that might, uh, might explain why they've been able to... We don't have any information about that right okay. now. Um, we, we do know that the virus is evolving. There are changes. There's variants there. Um, although we do know that the therapeutic that was developed and tried out on, on the seven patients, the ZMAP, that actually is cross-reactive, even though it was it was generated against the K strain, um, it's cross-reactive with the G strain, so they were able to use it. Um, and it doesn't, it, it's not clear if all of the um, uh, other strains are going to be as cross-reactive as well, but there are changes, there's some, there's immunity, there's apparently a, there is antibodies, there is immunity in these individuals. It may be, there is some thought that it might be, the individuals might themselves be resistant to some degree. It's inconclusive at this time because we don't have enough information or data to, to know whether these, uh, um, people who have, you know, uh, survived exposure, whether it's because they just happen to ha- be exposed to a, a lower dose and therefore a, were able to handle it better, their immune systems are better because they have some sort of, you know, resistance, or they just encountered a strain that was a little bit less virulent. So at this point, we don't have enough information on the epidemiology of it to, to really say. Okay. Um, could you could you clear up the the therapeutic side of things? I think there's a little bit of confusion there because there was that big advancement that came out of Japan, um, and and I and I think people here are hearing these reports of them running out of the um, the pharmaceutical agent, um, and also reports of people using. Um, biological products from individuals who are resistant. So can you can you kind of tell us a little bit about what's really going on with respect to therapy? Sure. Well, so so all of the therapies that are available right now, none of them have been tested in clinical trials with humans, okay? Some have been tested on a small level with in, in animals, okay? Um, and the only... One right now that we have, well, two, I should say. Uh, one is the one that was used on the Samaritan, the, 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 um, uh, that was the ZMAT therapy. So we've got several different types of approaches here. 
we have the approach where after you've been infected, you have now antibodies that you give passively to the individuals to uh, block any further uh, spread of the virus by binding to the virus and, and keeping it away from the cells. So this is uh, the ZMAP therapy works in that way where you have, you know, in fact, the, it's a it's a cocktail of three different uh, monoclonal antibodies that were generated, um, and those antibodies will bind to the surface of the virus. And if you have it, have enough of those antibodies around, it prevents them from binding to the to the host cells, so that you don't get as much bleed out and you don't infect, infect as many cells. So it's sort of a protective measure. Um, as you're doing it. Um, of the seven patients that they had enough of that therapy for, so again, this had not been tested in animals or in humans, and when they, ha- they, they, they learned of the, the, the fact that there was this therapy available, um, it was purchased. Uh, NIH and CDC didn't have really anything to do with it other than uh, gave them permission to use it on an emergency basis. Um, but uh, for these uh, patients, and so uh, of of the seven, two uh, two died, even though they got received that that treatment. One was the um, an older seventy five year old Spanish man who's uh, who was a missionary there, and another one was a middle aged Liberian um, doctor who was one of these first responder doctors. Um, and he was treated in Liberia, and, and the two of them um, uh, died. The other five of those, two of the Americans that actually came to the to Emory, so when they, they were shipped back to the U.S., those two individuals survived, um, and three Africans that received it. There is no more supplies of this new map currently. However, um, the government, um, in the form of uh, the uh, Biomedical Advanced Research Development Authority, uh, part of the government, has uh, given um, MAP, which is the the uh, pharmaceutical company um, <clears throat> based in San Diego, they have given them um, a, a $24.9 million grant to ramp up the production of this um, uh, from plants. So it turns out that they were developing this these antibodies in um, a tobacco-like plant um, so that they could uh, extract the, the antibodies from that and use them. And of course, it was intended to be used for, you know, first animal testing and safety and, and things like that, but they did not have that much um, uh, done with them when they, they ended up using all of the test samples that they had available to them. So they need to make more. Um, so as a result of that, uh, we now, if you really think about it, we've only got, you know, uh, five out of seven patients surviving um, uh, that have had that, that treatment. And whether or not um, it was really the ZMAP that contributed to it, of course, we don't have enough um, uh, test results back to, to really confirm that that's really, you know, um, that it, that was able to be helpful. Um, the other therapy is, um, well, there's two types. One of them is an RNA-based one, so it's an antiviral drug that, that's being developed. And this is uh, uh, primarily through a Canadian company 
that has developed this, and and they received funding um, from the Department of Defense uh, uh, to develop this. They had, for for whatever reason, the FDA had placed a hold on the Phase One trial um, of that of this of this drug, um, and uh, apparently it had to do with some of the safety aspects of it. But uh, they've just recently released and made it a partial hold, so they're just they're uh, being cautious about it right now until some some uh, protocol changes can be made for this. Um, so this right now is an investigational new drug um, uh, that is is out there and and it needs it needs further testing. So it's not clear what the development or where it is in, in terms of it's being able to be used. Now, the other drug that, um, which you mentioned was the, uh, the one that they have in, um, from Japan, and that actually is a drug that they, uh, it's targeted against the RNA polymerase, so it's an, it's an analog, um, that binds to this polymerase, and, and this drug actually was developed for both for flu and and of course it was shown to be safe in in some uh, trials that they had done there for the purpose of using it for flu but they think that they can also use it for um, for Ebola and so they are um, now saying that they'd like to you know get permission to do that and of course whether or not they get permission they said they are claiming that they will go ahead and and, and deliver it and, and give the treatments uh, of having the, the treatments available anyway to the to the um, uh, to the countries that are affected. So right now, that seems to be the three main uh, things that are available right now for for treatment, and none of them have been adequately tested for Ebola. And well, they're not they're not available yet. Um, do, are there projections as to when those those drugs might be available? Well, I think that the ramping up of the ZMAP um, is hope that they can get stuff uh, in in production and get it up and, and going and and maybe even have uh, stuff available within eighteen months. Eighteen months. Um, the RNAi-based technology. Well, this one, uh, I think that they technically could probably come up with it pretty quickly. Um, but again, I, since it had some safety issues, it's not it's not clear to me where what those safety issues were that caused the FDA to put a hold on them. And so I'm not really sure what um, uh, is going on. And and it wasn't a large operation, but maybe they can ramp it up. The the Japanese um, drug, they they seem to have enough of it, but again, it hasn't been used in large uh, large populations. Mm -hmm. Certainly not for Ebola. So we'll see. Um, so so there must be a lot of of pressure on the timing of these drugs because. Uh, all the projections that I'm seeing um, from the WHO and others are are really putting um, death tolls at minimum in the tens of thousands by the end of the year. Um, is are those the kind of numbers that you're also seeing? Well, I think that most of the researchers are. are that's probably a pretty close to accurate. <laughs> 
if not more, simply because we don't have anything to, to curb this at this point. Traditionally, what you would do is you'd go in there and you would, you know, wall off the areas, confine them, implement um, ways to contain the spread and, you know, keep it from spreading so that you can minimize the number of uh, uh, of individuals who get exposed. I'm not sure how well that's going to work for in this case. And so I think probably the project, and certainly I don't think any of the ones, we're not going to see uh, a, a lot of therapies being able to be implemented in the, you know, by the end of the year. We'll be lucky if we have something that can be given to individuals at that point. So I think we're, that's not a bad estimate. And the traditional um, responses that you mentioned, walling off the virus, um, really trying to control it on a case-by-case basis, are those not working partially because this um, this particular outbreak has been a lot more metropolitan, whereas the other ones were more confined to rural um, rural areas? No doubt that's playing uh, a, a big factor, yeah. I mean, when you can actually isolate a village um, and basically keep it where it's at and not allow for a lot of movement from one village to another, you can certainly curb the outbreak. And and I think that's what has been done in previous outbreaks. I mean, the outbreak right now is far more than what it has ever been um, total. So I think that we're, we're, because it's now in a more urban area, we, we are seeing a little bit more uh, challenge in being able to, to contain it. Okay. And um, it's interesting to me that it's kind of, it looks like it's a, um, a, a battle both on the, the policy side, the city policy, um, hospital policy, and the science side, right? Um, yes, you have that, and you have on top of that, you also have a lot of ethical questions that you have to bring into this as well, because essentially we're, um, you know, um, we're using a very vulnerable population to try out untested drugs, <laughs> and that's a problem. So the public response to that really, really doesn't seem to be one of great great concern um it's interesting you can take whatever you can get right (laughs) yeah yeah that seems to be the way people feel yeah i i think that right now i mean i think a lot of people feel that oh well you know when you're dying you take whatever you can get right Mm -hmm. um and that unfortunately is is exactly the, the problem is you are vulnerable when you're in this situation and so you're willing to try anything, and that anything might make it worse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, um, well, we'll just have to wait and see how that plays out. Yeah. Uh, one point. One point that you mentioned earlier that I wanted to come back to was how um, how um, healthcare workers have been kind of strikingly affected by this. I think that. The WHO reported that 10% of fatalities have actually been healthcare workers, um, mm-hmm. and and I, I wonder if that is um, 
one of the major sources of concern about international spread because healthcare workers were the ones who got a lot of press for being internationally transported back to their countries of origin to get treated. Um, is that is that your understanding of it? Yes. I, I think that that's one concern that everybody has is that we're going to be bringing it back to other countries and letting it spread. Um, and if it were a more contagious disease, then I would have a lot of issues. Um, right now, it is not as contagious as, you know, um, I, that we, I think that we can, right now, we can safely handle people coming back as long as we put them under, you know, keep them, uh, as we did in the case of the, the two patients that came back uh, uh, at Emory. I think that that sort of thing is, is feasible, it's okay. Um, I am I am worried about it. And actually, the big thing that I'm worried about is that people are going to go there and they're going to come back, and because of the two or so week lag period, they're going to come back and they're not going to get sick mm-hmm. for a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. And, and, that's, and then if, during that period of time, of course, they have um, the capability of spreading it to others. Yeah, how would you address that? Well, I guess quarantine is the only way that you can really address that mm-hmm. is monitor the individuals that are coming back. I mean, right now, the CDC has warnings out that within the three-week period of coming back from any of these countries that, you know, have this high risk, um, that you should be monitoring yourself very carefully. You know, if you have, the minute you have any kind of fever or anything like that, you should immediately get seen just to make sure that you're okay. Um, there's, you know, but, um, and, and of course you're saying three weeks because that's the safe range. Um, you sh- If you do have it, you, you will probably know it within, you know, Certainly within two weeks, we should probably know about it. So, and, but um, if you haven't, if you don't have a fever in three weeks, then you're probably okay. Okay, um, and those those countries, those four countries are Liberia, Nigeria, Senegal, and Sierra Leone, right? And Guinea. Oh, and Guinea, and Guinea. Um, yeah, Senegal just was added, so that's so that makes it five. Okay. Um. So um so can can you maybe put this in the context uh, the larger context of uh, of global infectious disease outbreaks um where does this kind of rank um well it's um it's I guess in this particular case it's not too far off from what we were looking at with, uh, in terms of outcomes, in ter- like we saw with uh, with the SARS problem. Mm. But SARS uh, was much more contagious and really needed to be, you know, w- major worries in terms of spread um, because it. Uh, it didn't. It, it was, you know, definitely airborne, and you definitely could breathe it on somebody, sort of thing. Um, you have a lot of other interests with respect to biosecurity. Uh, what are some of the other um, issues that you that you think about? Well, of course, 
We have right now a major crisis because we are antibiotic or antimicrobial resistance is a major problem. Um, we also don't have good antivirals. We we you know we we never have and we haven't still have good antiviral um, drugs. And we thought we had pretty good antibacterial drugs, and we now are finding that a large number of microbes are resistant to them now. And the and these resistances are spreading tremendously. And we now have, you know, six or so what we call superbugs spreading throughout not just hospitals but in the communities as well. Um, things like MRSA and TB and Pseudomonas and uh, Acinobacter and Klebsiella and E. coli, all of these are spreading. So we've got, we've got a lot of the uh, transmission of many diseases and we don't have very good control measures for any of these. Again, that was Dr. Wilson, professor of microbiology at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Thanks so much for listening today and join us next week for the Grok Science Show. Enjoy the rest of your day and until next time, keep on grokking.